there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 115, The Peace to End All War. Alrighty, this week we're wrapping up our extended overview of 1920s anti-war diplomacy, and to cap things off, we're going to be covering the most ambitious agreement made during the interwar period. Some, and by some I mean everybody, might say too ambitious. Because with Germany's return to the fold of normalized diplomacy in the back half of the 1920s, people started thinking big. They started thinking that since the general public of most every nation was all on board with disarmament and avoiding another great war, why not go the full distance? Why not outlaw war entirely? This was a big ask. People had been waging war since before the start of recorded history, and despite everyone feeling bad about the last major conflict, there didn't appear to be any indication the concept was going away. And I am simplifying things when I say outlaw war. Nobody was naive enough to assume they could make conflict go away, but there were plans put in motion to make it as difficult as humanly possible to start one. The end result was the Kellogg-Briand Pact, an agreement between nations to renounce the use of war as a mechanism to resolve disputes. It was far-reaching, again, definitely too far-reaching, but it was also a refreshingly optimistic attempt. Its failure is notorious, as many look back at it sneeringly, given the disasters of the two decades that followed it. Still, it demonstrated that by the end of the 1920s, before the Great Depression ruined everything at least, that there were at least serious attempts at building and implementing a vision of the world truly different than what had come before. But I'm getting ahead of myself. The foundations of what would become the eventual Kellogg-Briand Pact were laid over the course of centuries of legalism. And for most of those centuries, lawyers tried to argue the justness of one war or the other. Typically, it was experts who wanted to assure their own populations and foreign governments that their own nation was behaving in a perfectly justified manner. This mostly went for when nations behaved aggressively and took what had not been theirs, whether it was territory or simple plunder. That's not exactly an inspiring start to the establishment of legal principles that would later seek to bar war altogether, but self-centered beginnings would grow into something else. By putting so much effort into establishing a casus belli, which is a fun Latin term that means cause for war, governments were de facto admitting that there had to be some legal basis for war, that there had to be legal constraints in regards to how the war was waged. Unchecked and ungoverned violence gradually became less acceptable, although this became the case more quickly in some areas more so than others. Colonial wars were almost universally brutal affairs, and only the most egregious examples of imperial misbehavior would attract the attention of legalists. Still, by the start of the 20th century, the idea of wars needing to be justified was well established. And thanks to agreements made in Geneva and The Hague, ones continuously updated both before and after World War I, the conduct of war became regulated as well. Which was all well and good, but the devastation of World War I blew everything wide open in terms of what people and nations found acceptable. Despite ample demonstrations and smaller conflicts leading up to World War I, the great powers did not fully appreciate the destructive power of the technologies they had harnessed, which shocked themselves and the rest of the world once that war got going. Poison gas, modern artillery, machine guns, sinister submarines striking boats seemingly out of nowhere, all became points of contention. 
And despite technologies like aerial bombing still being in its infancy, the destructive potential of air power was immediately recognized. War could no longer be defended as a tragic but honorable means of hashing out differences. It was a monstrous thing top to bottom, and promised nothing but grinding, wasteful slaughter. And initially, that's what the whole Versailles system was supposed to be, a diplomatic arrangement that would prevent the outbreak of a new war. The Geneva and Hague treaties were updated to account for the new weapons, and disarmament became a major goal that was popular with the global public. But then there were the early failures, France being too paranoid to draw down its own army, the Germans bucking their treaty obligations, new or enlarged nations mistrustfully entering a dangerous new world while only looking out for number one. And then there was the joke of attempting to try war criminals in the conflict's aftermath. I skipped over mentioning the Leipzig trials of 1921, and for good reason. They were pretty useless. The trials were conducted by Germany against some of the more egregious examples of war crimes committed by a handful of its soldiers. The thing was, only about a dozen people were brought before the courts, the two highest-ranking defendants being only minor generals. Others were also accused of grave crimes, but the big fish at the top of Imperial Germany were left totally alone. It was an international scandal at the time, but of course the Germans just shrugged and wondered aloud what the big deal was. Lesson learned, don't leave it to nations to prosecute their own criminals when dealing with international crimes. But all these efforts did not pass without criticism. Especially in the United States, efforts like the League of Nations, arms limitations, and updating international laws of warfare failed to address what to some seemed blindingly obvious, that they were treating symptoms and not the disease. War was the disease, and while it was being given a new rulebook after World War I, that just meant new innovations would make it all the worse down the road. The latter 1800s rules of conduct in wartime were supposed to make the carnage a bit less barbarian, but then the events of 1914-18 to 18 went and made a mockery of all those rules. You could ban chemical weapons, but something worse would just replace it. Which, hey, is exactly what happened come 1945. The heart of the matter had to be struck at. War had to be taken off the table. This stance was driven oddly enough by the Americans, people who had been among the most removed from the horrors of the Great War. But that particular American trait of believing maybe a little too much in oneself manifested among the country's elites. All through the war, it was especially the rich and powerful who thought that they could end the madness of Europe and make a peace. Henry Ford, for example, made a fool of himself embarking on a peace tour of Europe, convinced his own unsanctioned efforts could bring the Entente and Central Powers to the table. Didn't happen, obviously, but imagine being in the headspace where you could think that you could do such a thing. More common were societies and NGOs committed to advocating for a general peace, which people donated money to or lent a share of their fame to getting their message out. Again, not terribly effective, but demonstrated that Americans wanted to convince the Europeans to knock it off. Enter Salman Levinson, a successful corporate lawyer but otherwise unremarkable figure who hailed from Chicago. He came from a Jewish-German family, the previous two generations of which being immigrants. His background subjected him to the anti-Semitism that was the norm of the day. He kept his head down going through law school, and his success can be attributed to both having the work ethic of an underdog and scrupulously avoiding personal conflicts, 
understanding that the society he lived in could destroy him in an instant if it so chose. He, like so many others, was horrified by news of the violence, and in reading the running debates between pro-Entente and pro-German writers in the American press, he resolved to use his extensive network of contacts he had built as a nationally successful corporate lawyer to advocate for a compromise peace. It was during his discussions with his peers on the matter that he hit upon the idea of making war itself a violation of law. In 1918, he composed his ideas in a short memo he presented to a close friend of his, who in turn passed it along to contacts of his own at the New Republic magazine. The publication would wind up printing the memo as an article. Its contents would form the standard basis of arguments going into the future. Proposed changes to international law continued to allow war as a practice of last resort, and even then only justifiably in a defensive capacity. An analogy was made comparing war to dueling. At first, it was a barbaric free-for-all. Then, over centuries, its rules were tightened more and more, with the entire process on the surface being sanitized. But once it got going, it had every potential to be a bloodbath despite that intention. And by 1918, dueling was by and large outlawed, because no matter how you dressed it up, the inherent violence still remained. The same principle could be applied to war. At one time, it might have seemed outlandish to forbid the settling of individual differences through violence, but those traditions were overcome. So, too, could violence between nations. And at first, Levinson had high hopes for Wilson's idea for a League of Nations, believing it could keep a tight grip on conflicts between nations. Then he saw the League Covenant and immediately went running to the Republicans, the opposition party to the Democrat Wilson. The Republicans were scandalized that the League would draw the U.S. into a foreign war against its will. Levinson was scandalized that the League only sought to regulate war, not forbid it entirely. In his discussions with the Republican opposition, Levinson made the unlikely ally of William Borah, a senator from Idaho. If Senate Majority Leader Henry Cabot Lodge was Wilson's most direct enemy, then Borah was the loudest. He combined a powerful oratorical talent with an air of the American frontier that proved very effective in Washington, D.C. And those talents were put to the cause of isolationism. He was so obstructive when it came to foreign affairs, he even voted against the eventual separate peace with Germany, claiming the peace treaty would pave the way for America's eventual membership in the League. Thanks in no small part to Bora's exhortations against the shackling commitments of the League, legislation to join the organization was scuttled. All this contrarianism gave Bora a national profile, but unfortunately for him, that profile was that of being a negative Nancy. He could say no, but he desired something positive to propose, lest his reputation preclude him from running for even higher office. Good thing for him, his new friend Levinson was right there with some new proposals. In 1921, he had founded a group called the American Committee for the Outlawry of War, which, as the name lays out, was a lobbying group to outlaw war. Initially, his political frontman had been another Republican senator, Philander Knox of Pennsylvania, but Knox had died earlier in the year, and Levinson tapped Bora to replace him. Bora, despite seeming an odd fit for a group advocating a global treaty obligating each nation to remain peaceful, signed on. Literature was printed up, and pamphlets blanketed the entire country in the hundreds of thousands, targeting specifically the powerful or groups well represented at the ballot box. The hang-up that Bora had was that he did need a practical answer as to how the idea would be enforced. It's all well and good to make war illegal, but to borrow an idea from Andrew Jackson, 
if the court makes a decision, it better have a way to enforce it. A binding resolution of force against any offenders was out of the question. That was exactly what was being kicked around the league, and such a system was seen as guaranteed to be gamed by some insidious power to start a war anyway. I'm going to be upfront. Levinson didn't have a good answer, at least in my personal opinion. Levinson himself thought he hit upon a clever little bit of lawyering that would make violence or sanctions in response to aggression moot. He argued that as part of the agreement, each nation should hold an internal vote to agree to the terms of outlawing war. If anyone from that nation then violated the law, well, they could be dragged in front of their own courts. This would neatly avoid having an international criminal court butting in. I think you instantly see the problem with this line of thought. Popular opinion being used to ban war was kind of a safe bet. The world's populace was receptive to the idea, especially if the wording was vague enough. The real challenge was in getting states and their institutions to go along with the idea, and it relied on a great deal of faith that each nation would monitor itself for aggressors. I'm going to use the obvious example of Nazi Germany. The German people would have asserted publicly that war should be banned, but the second you would have asked them to hold Hitler and his government accountable, they would have awkwardly changed the subject. Levinson, though, saw things through the prism of law. He understood that law was an abstract concept concocted by man to maintain a status quo. And while oftentimes it might have been in the interests of most to not go along with some laws, over time people accommodated themselves to their law codes. The same would go for nations. They might balk at first, but over time the law would be internalized. So yeah, not the most promising plan on how to enforce outlawry, but don't worry, Levinson wasn't going to be the only guy tackling the issue. James Shotwell had, for most of his working life, been a medieval history professor working at Columbia University. For some reason, Woodrow Wilson included him in a team of 100 experts that he assembled to provide advice on negotiations to end World War I, and was even included in the much more exclusive group of 21 such experts to accompany the president of France as part of the Paris Peace Conference. Shotwell did not actually do a whole heck of a lot in Paris, but the life of a medieval historian didn't quite have the same luster after rubbing shoulders with the movers and shakers of the world for almost six months. He decided to recommit his time towards a more meaningful purpose. He involved himself in the academic debates surrounding world disarmament, and in 1923 convened a group of his peers to Columbia U to discuss drafting a disarmament treaty. He came to a similar idea that Levinson and his fellows had come to earlier, that war itself should be made illegal. The key difference with Levinson, though, was that Shotwell and his guys were much more internationalist in outlook, and perfectly willing to use international organizations to enforce such an idea. The community of nations would work together to police itself, and special courts would be set up to adjudicate disputes, and those who rejected their rulings would be branded an aggressor and put down. It's ironic that among the biggest boosters of this internationalism were Americans, citizens of a country which had publicly rejected the League. This actually created a humorous situation between Shotwell and the U.S. Secretary of State at the time, Charles Hughes. By 1924, Shotwell and his allies were directly working with the League to make their proposals an international norm. Hughes pointed out that working with a foreign entity that was in dispute with the U.S. was illegal under the Logan Act. Shotwell responded that since the League wasn't recognized by the U.S., for all intents and purposes in the eyes of the U.S. government, the League didn't exist. 
Hughes at least had enough of a sense of humor to laugh and drop the point. This internationalist approach pretty much immediately put Shotwell and Levinson at odds with each other. Levinson seethed that a medieval history professor of little repute outside academic circles was hijacking his movement and taking it to the exact place he had been avoiding. Shotwell's acceptance of enforcing the general peace through force was a bridge that the isolationist Levinson could never cross, and was used by Shotwell to pitch his idea as practical, where his opposite number strategy was not. Shotwell's plan was well enough received in Geneva that it would eventually evolve into the Geneva Protocol. I already went over the controversies over that plan back in episode 111, and you'll remember that both the binding commitment to collective action in response to aggression, and the fact that several major nations weren't parties to the protocol meant that support for it eventually collapsed in 1927. Shotwell, though, wasn't through with his ambition to outlaw war. In March 1927, he arranged to have a message sent through a contact he had made during his Paris days to the French foreign minister, our old friend Briand. This kind of gumption is actually kind of impressive, as despite his international profile, Shotwell didn't have any official standing. Nevertheless, he caught Briand at an opportune time. France had been stonewalling the Germans on disarmament and were in the thick of bickering over the Rhineland. They were showing little patience with general disarmament, as ever concerned about their eastern neighbor. This was starting to wear on world public opinion, especially in the United States, and Briand was fully aware of that. He didn't want France to get too isolated, and Shotwell was claiming he knew how that could be rectified. He proposed to go big, with Briand approaching the United States with a non-aggression treaty with its core text outlawing war between the two nations. There wouldn't be provisions about enforcing sanctions or intervening directly, just a nice, general statement of principle. Having been rebuffed at Geneva, Shotwell was angling to just try and get his foot through the door again. For Briand, it offered a way to patch up relations with the U.S. and get them to make even a minimal international commitment, which itself could lead to something else down the road, maybe. Briand made his grand proposal in April 1927 to coincide with the 10th anniversary of America's entry into World War I, and the reception was complete indifference in the American press. When Shotwell got back stateside, he discovered that the proposal had been ignored. This probably stung, but shouldn't have been too surprising. The probability of war between the U.S. and France was so low as to be nil. There simply wasn't a practical need for a treaty of non-aggression and friendship. Shotwell didn't give up and convinced the president of Columbia U. to write to the New York Times that he wanted to publish a letter voicing support for the Briand proposal. The paper proceeded to publish both the letter, which Shotwell wrote, and also republished the Briand pitch. This actually caught the attention of Secretary of State Frank Kellogg, the successor of Charles Hughes, who immediately went into rage mode at a pack of academics going over his head and directly working with foreign officials on matters of diplomacy. He called them, quote, a set of fucking fools. Kellogg's inclination was to continue ignoring Briand, and he tried that for some months. But then Levinson came back into the story by actually supporting Shotwell's case. The proposal was minimalist enough that both factions of the anti-war movement could agree on it, and they started nudging Kellogg. And by nudging, I mean endless streams of op-eds, letter campaigns, and public rallies. It became a public enough issue that Kellogg had to act on it. The thing was, though, he sensed what Briand was really after, which was a little bit of groundwork for a security guarantee between the U.S. and France. 
Kellogg might have been thinking of a way to scuttle the whole thing because he countered Briand's offer by going way bigger. Why not, instead of a treaty forbidding war between their two nations, they make one that all nations could join that forbid aggressive wars in general? Now the tables were turned and Briand was in an awkward spot. Kellogg knew full well that France's Locarno commitments and its guarantees in Central Europe precluded banning war outright. After all, those agreements rested on the use of force if they were violated. It was now Briand's turn to delay for months, using stalling negotiations to buy time and devise a way to balance his nation's obligations with this new treaty which was now a much bigger deal than he thought it would be. Levinson, Shotwell, and all their supporters, meanwhile, were jubilant. They actually had a public commitment from the U.S. government that their dream would be worked on. And Kellogg himself started coming around to the idea. The way the treaty came together was much to his liking. It was basically the original Briand proposal, just expanded to welcome anyone wishing to sign off on it. The idea of banning aggressive war was simple, and didn't really cost anything diplomatically. The U.S. wasn't intending to launch wars of conquest, and banning international aggression was universally popular among public opinion. He was basically proposing to set aside a tool they never intended to use to boost the standing of the Coolidge administration at both home and abroad. And the upshot of keeping it simple was that it meant the U.S. didn't have to commit to a damn thing. No system of sanctions, no peacekeeping. It was just a flat agreement. And yes, that is where supporters of it kind of ran into trouble. They were asked, what do you do when a treaty member breaks the provisions? The answer might not be satisfying to the listener, which was in that event, the entire treaty would be voided and everybody could take what steps they saw fit in taking. Which sounds really bad, and is the reason the eventual Kellogg-Briand pact gets looked back upon as a waste of time. But for men like Kellogg and Briand personally, the treaty was about good relations and PR, while for Shotwell and Levinson, it was about establishing a legal precedent where there wasn't any before. On August 27, 1928, the treaty was finally signed off on in Paris by 15 nations, with the number of signatories eventually rising to 56, including most major nations of the world. In mid-January 1929, the treaty sailed through the U.S. Senate 85 to 1, and was quickly ratified by President Herbert Hoover. It had taken over a decade, but Levinson and Shotwell at last could point to tangible results. Kellogg, who had so opposed the treaty originally, quickly tried to make the success entirely his own. The Locarno diplomats had all won the Nobel Peace Prize, and he saw his shot to win it too. He publicly feigned disinterest while waging a campaign for it behind closed doors. His main competition was Levinson himself, and Kellogg started to smear the lawyer in the press, stating that Levinson had little to do with negotiations, and at best had submitted some reading to the State Department. It worked, and later in 1929, he won his prize. The practical effect of the treaty was not immediately apparent. After all, the world was largely at peace, and given the successful agreements at Locarno and the continued march of disarmament, it seemed like it would stay that way for the time being. Unfortunately, we're getting perilously close to the Great Depression, an economic crisis that would shake loose the fragile order that had been constructed during the 1920s. It was a crisis so great that it would eventually prove the Kellogg-Briand Pact a failure, but I'm not quite done with the treaty in the long term. It might not have stopped a war from breaking out, something that it wasn't exactly designed to do in the first place, but it provided the legal framework to explicitly state that aggressive wars were wrong and could be punished. This was an important distinction between World War I and World War II. 
I mentioned earlier that the attempted war crime trials post-World War I were a joke, and that was because there wasn't any recognized legal recourse to prosecuting the start of wars or their consequences. It happened, and while it might be frowned upon in most circumstances, wars weren't anything to hang national leaders over. Now there was a mechanism saying not to start wars, which to the modern listener seems like a no-brainer, but would provide the basis of the later Nuremberg and Tokyo war crimes trials. What I'm getting at is that one day I'll be circling back around to this idea. And with that, our little mini-series on international peacekeeping efforts during the 1920s comes to a close. What should we be taking away from these haphazard, largely separate, and uncoordinated efforts? The first is that, by and large, they were incomplete. The League of Nations suffered from not having all necessary nations under one roof at one time to be a genuinely representative body of world consensus, and especially in its early days, seemed to be a tool for the victors of World War I. Disarmament discussions never ended, and will continue in the 1930s, even past the point where it's obvious everybody was gearing up for something big. Even naval disarmament, so comprehensively addressed at Washington, was continuously tinkered with, and we'll be touching on the topic again in Season 2. And as Genoa demonstrated, precious time was wasted in the first half of the decade, and was recovered from only somewhat by the reduced ambitions of the Locarno participants. And through it all, the lack of effective leadership on the part of the major powers slowed progress every step of the way. By the end of 1929, there were partially realized ambitions of peace that, if left to their trajectory at the time, might have evolved into something lasting. The peacemakers of the 20s, though, didn't get that additional time, and with the onset of the Depression, what they built up began to crash down around them. Again, that's for the future, but for once, I'm able to say it is for the near future, because next will be my miniseries covering the United States in the 20s, and how they helped or hindered international stability which is actually going to be a short series, because the U.S. was a determinedly hands-off player. Heck, I've documented most of its major international moves already in this series. Its big contributions to the failure of peace were that lack of international leadership, and even more so the economic powder keg that was unwittingly set up that caused the Depression. There will be other topics too, but it isn't going to be nearly as large as my past two national series. So, next week... Look forward to the start of Season 1's denouement, and the setup for all the bad to follow after. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.